Welcome. You are listening to the Thinking to Believe podcast. My name is Jason Dooley, and this is a place where thinking is believing. And lately, we've been thinking about the moral argument for God's existence. Last time, we talked about morality, and I made a case that morality is objective rather than subjective. And then we looked at the moral experience. What is our experience of morality? What is it that has to be explained? Remember, the moral argument purports to explain morality. So if we're going to understand the power of the moral argument, we have to be able to understand what it's attempting to explain. So that's what we covered last time. Today, we're going to look at the grounding problem and then begin to look at some of the non-theistic explanations for morality. In other words, these are non-theistic options to ground morality, to explain morality. So let's begin by looking at the grounding problem. Now, I had brought up the grounding problem briefly when we talked about the concepts that you would need to understand to make sense of the moral argument. Let's talk about it in a little bit more detail now. When we think about morality, we often think about our moral knowledge. It's questions about applied ethics, like what is right, what is wrong. We think in terms of uh, knowing right and wrong and doing what's right, you know, avoiding what's wrong. But those are questions about moral epistemology, questions of applied ethics. But I think the deeper issue to be solved is moral ontology. In other words, not just knowing morality, but making sense of that which we know. So getting clarifications on exactly what it is that we know. Where does that knowledge come from? What makes that knowledge real and true? What makes moral values something that we are obligated to, that we have a an obligation to fulfill some moral duties? In fact, what makes anything right or wrong in the first place? These are all questions regarding the ontological grounding of morality. And a lot of people want to ignore this question. They are content just to believe in objective morality and never ask the deeper questions about where that morality comes from. And in a culture like ours, where we're very pragmatic and it's about doing what works, it's sort of understandable why people take that approach. They're just concerned with the the nuts and the bolts of morality, and they don't really think about it any deeper than that. Um, but I think if we're leaving it at that level, then we are, at the very least, displaying a lack of intellectual curiosity. And I think in many times, it's just intellectual laziness. I mean, think about it. If you had found some glowing orb in the middle of the forest somewhere, you wouldn't just be content to know what it is. You would also want to know where did it come from? Did this come from outer space? Did somebody create it uh, in a lab and they lost it here? You know, you'd want to know more. So pragmatism is important, but that's a deficient approach to life. And I think when it comes to morality, we should want to find out more than just what is moral, but what is the foundation for morality? And the need of an explanation is a very important part of moral philosophy. The Yale philosopher Shelley Kagan writes this, this need for explanation in morality 
uh, or in moral theory, cannot be overemphasized. One of the things we want our moral theory to help us understand is how there can even be a moral realm and what sort of objective status it has. End quote. Philosopher Julian Baggini goes so far as to say that, quote, anyone who thinks it's easy to ground ethics either hasn't done much moral philosophy or wasn't concentrating when they did. So morality needs to be grounded in something. And for it to be objective, it has to be grounded in something that's beyond the human mind. Now, obviously, we contemplate morality in our mind. But we can't ground morality in the mind. It has to transcend human beings if it's going to be objective. And I'm going to argue that the only possible grounding for morality that makes sense of our entire moral experience is going to be a good personal God. In other words, the God of theism. I think God explains the existence of moral values. God explains uh, why we have moral obligations. God explains the moral feelings that we have um, and our moral desires, such as the desire for moral accountability. Of course, we never desire our own accountability. We desire the accountability of others. But these are all facets of the moral experience. And of course, we discussed those last time. But before I actually make that case that theism is the best explanation for all these things. I want to look at all of the non-theistic hypotheses that attempt to ground morality and see whether or not they can explain you know, things like the objectivity of moral truths and they can explain the full breadth of our moral experience. So let's go ahead and turn our attention then to these non-theistic moral explanations. I'm going to look at seven non-theistic explanations and see how well they comport with our moral experience. So the first will be social construction theory, uh, social contract theory, evolutionary ethics, the idea that morality is just a brute fact, and uh, the idea that we get morality from rationality, uh, that we get morality from science or abstract objects. So those are the seven non-theistic explanations of morality that I'm going to look at. Now, most moral theories actually end up with a subjective version of morality. And in subjective morality, you know, the grounding of morality is the human mind. In other words, it's really, it doesn't even need to be grounded. It's just, we believe these moral ideas uh, they are subjective in nature. It's based purely on human will or human imagination, human desires. Um, and that's where a lot of moral theories lead. So not all non-theistic explanations we're going to look at even purport to explain objective morality. Some of them uh, admit that morality is not objective, or I should say they claim morality is not objective. They're just trying to explain why humans are concerned with moral categories. And concerned with finding ways for humans to live. So you could say that they're moral theories in the sense that they you know, are, are a, a theory of applied ethics. But again, these ethics don't have any objective basis in the world. They're just the ideas of human beings and they're pragmatic in nature. So you know, views like the social construction view or social contract, evolutionary explanations, these are all going to be subjectivist accounts of morality. Now, obviously, those are not going to ground 
objective moral truths. We've already argued that morality is objective. So you might be saying, well, why even bother going through these theories? Well, I think the reason I want to go through them is because of how prominent uh, these explanations are among those who reject theistic ethics. They'll they'll say, well, oh, I can explain morality, and then they go into you know social construct, social contract, etc., and try to think uh, say that these explain morality. Well, they can explain moral beliefs. Maybe um, they can help humans to decide what behaviors they want to live by, but they don't explain objective morality. But let's look at these because of how common um, these views uh, are are proffered in place of theistic ethics. So the first one is the social construction theory. Now, in this view, morality is an invention of the people that are in power in order to control the people that they are over. So those in power, if they don't want the people to do X, and but they do want them to do Y, then they'll claim that X is bad and Y is good, and that way they manipulate the people into doing what they want. And of course, for a little motivation to help them to avoid X and do Y, it helps to throw in some fear of judgment. Um, that could be either worldly judgment in the sense of, if you don't do these things, we're going to throw you in prison or we're going to kill you, or... You could say they even invent religious ideas, that there is a God who will judge them for their lack of obedience. So in favor of this theory, what could be said in its, uh, as a positive is that it's true that many people in power do invent their own morals. They do come up with things that they say are right and good, and they enforce those on their people because it benefits them. For example, Hitler claimed it was good to kill Jews. And he forced other people to comply with his ethic. But the weaknesses of social construction theory are numerous. Number one, it is not objective. On a social construction theory, morality is subjective. It's invented by people. So it does not transcend the human mind. Rather, its genesis, its origin is in the human mind. So it's not real. It has no basis outside of human beings. Um, And therefore, this theory can never ground objective moral values. It just explains why humans invented various subjective versions of morality. Second problem is that these rules and this moral system are not good in any objective sense or meaningful sense of the word good, because morals and this theory are just preferences, desires, the expression of desires chosen by the powerful people so that they can dictate the way that other people live. So in that sense, morality is no different than the rules of monopoly. Somebody invented the rules and everybody else follows them. So you might say that some of these rules have a pragmatic goodness, maybe even some pragmatic goodness for the people, Uh, but particularly they're pragmatically good for the rulers. Um, But there's no ethical goodness attached to this morality. Number three, this uh, moral system cannot ground moral obligations. I mean, it's one thing to say that the ruler says I need to do X, but why should I do X? What obligation do I have to obey the ruler? Says who? Who says that I should do what those in power say I should do? In other words, where does the 
the moral oughtness come from? Now, you could say, well, there's a fear of retribution if you don't obey those in power. But if you're willing to accept the consequences, you've really done nothing really wrong. Uh, Maybe it's against your self-interest, but hey, why not? Um, Should you do it just because others do it? No, that doesn't ground a moral obligation. So this theory doesn't give you any reason to think that you have obligations to obey the moral commands of those in power. To grow this ministry, I need your prayers as well as your financial support. So if you're benefiting from this podcast and you want to see more content, then partner with me by becoming a monthly supporter. Visit thinkingtobelieve.com slash support to give via PayPal, Venmo, or Zelle. Any amount, big or small, is greatly appreciated. The fourth problem is what I call the external versus internal motivation problem. See, on social constructionism, morality is not motivated from the inside out. Remember, we said that's how morality works. We feel the force of the moral law um, acting on our conscience prior to committing the act. So that morality is motivated internally. But on a social construction view, the motivation for morality is coming from the outside in. It's coming from an external human agent who is compelling you to live in a certain way. So the theory may explain the content of our moral categories and why we think certain things are right and wrong, but it can never explain that moral force we feel acting on us prior to the act, because society can tell us to do something, but society cannot invent in us that feeling that we have, that moral compulsion that motivates us to act in certain ways. Fifth problem is if morality is invented by those in power for the sake of control, then why is it so effective? I mean, if morality is socially constructed just to control people, you would think that somebody would have been able to break away from this charade over you know, all the years that human beings have existed. So why is it so effective? Why is it that we can't get rid of this feeling of ought that compels our behavior and you know, the feeling of guilt that we have when we fail to do what we know we ought to do? Cultures, can, at best, can condition our beliefs, but they can't determine our beliefs. They can condition the way we feel, but they cannot determine our feelings or create in us certain feelings. The sixth and final flaw of social construction theory is that we recognize the difference between moral laws and social standards. Humans intuitively understand the difference between what is a moral rule and what is a social rule. In fact, there was a psychologist, Elliot Turiel and Judith Smetana, I think it's called, uh, pronounced Smetana, Smetana. Uh, they demonstrated that children understand the difference between things that are morally wrong and culturally wrong. Culturally wrong. Uh, they were asked if it would be wrong to wear pajamas to school or wrong to hit a girl for no reason. And these preschoolers said that both would be wrong. But when they asked if these things would become okay, if a teacher allowed them to do it, well, then the kids said, well, wearing pajamas would still be wrong, but, uh, or it would be okay, but hitting the person would still be wrong. So they understood that certain things are just social conventions 
that they are rules forced on us by those in power. There's nothing intrinsically wrong about those things, but that's just the rules of the people in power. So we understand the difference. So it's not like people would have been hoodwinked for millennia and not been able to break free of this social construction theory um, to see see it for what it is, that this is just an invention of human beings for the purpose of control. So social construction theory fails because it's not objective. Uh, the rules are not good in any objective, meaningful sense of the word. It cannot ground moral obligations. It uh, holds that the motivation for um, obedience to the moral rules is external rather than internal. Um, there's no explanation for why it has been so effective and nobody's been able to escape this sort of a moral system. And it fails because we recognize the difference between moral laws and social standards. All right, next is social contract theory. So we had social constructionism. This is social contract. Now, social contract theory holds that uh, morality rests on a tacit agreement between rationally self-interested individuals to abide by certain rules of the community because it's to the mutual advantage of everybody to do so. So there may be nothing intrinsically wrong with murder, rape, or torture, but since rational, self-interested persons don't want these things done to them, then they simply extend the courtesy to other people. So it's sort of a, a Jesus ethic where do to others as you want them to do to you. And so everybody enters into this social contract where we do to other people what we want done to us. And you say, well, isn't that a lot like social construction airy theory? Well, no. Um, it is in the sense that society, people, are determining what is moral. Um, but social constructionism would say it's just the few, or in some cases, one person who's in power, who's imposing his will or a, a small group of people's will on the, the masses. But in social contract theory, uh, the contract exists between all people. So everybody is agreeing to this morality, to this moral system. So there's no force per se that is causing people to join the contract. They do so willingly. And, it, and it's by you know a multitude of people that they enter into the contract rather than just one person forcing them into it. Now, to the credit of this theory, I think it rightly observes that a lot of morality is mutually beneficial to everybody. So it is mutually beneficial for everyone not to murder. It results in something that everybody wants. It's desirable. Um, and as I said, this seems to be similar to Jesus' ethic due to others what you would have them to do to you. So there are some strengths to this theory, but once again, there are a number of weaknesses. The first weakness is that it does not explain objective moral values. Um, and that's for the simple reason that it doesn't believe morals are objective. It's uh, morality is constructed uh, by society, by people. Second problem is it enshrines selfishness as the premier moral virtue. Um, or maybe you could even you know, lighten that up a little bit and say it enshrines self-interest as the premier moral virtue. In other words, what will benefit me? What is in my best interest? And that's what we were going to call morality. But if you reflect on morality, many things that we consider to be moral goods require us to deny our self-interest. So 
if social contract theory or contractarianism enshrines self-interest as the premier value, then it seems that this cannot explain our moral experience. Number three, it cannot ground moral obligations. I mean, there's no moral justification on contractarianism for claiming that one ought to abide by the contract. It may be within their self-interest to abide by the contract, but what if they choose to go against their self-interest? Or what if they disagree that this is in their self-interest and they don't want to abide by the contract? Who's to say that they've done anything wrong? Who's to say they have an obligation to abide by the contract that the majority of the people have decided to engage in? In fact, you could even say, what constitutes a moral contract? Is it just the majority, a simple majority? Is it a supermajority? Um, what if you have a society that's, you know, for 49% believe one way and 51% believe another? Which group wins? What morality gets put into the contract? Fourth problem, moral commands are conditional on the contractarian view. But when you think about moral commands, moral commands are unconditional. Everybody's required to obey them, and there's no conditions for saying, well, you're not required in, you know, in this situation or that situation. Um, no, everybody in the same situation is required to obey the commands. But on contractarianism, uh, commands are conditional because you choose to partake of the contract. You choose um, whether or not you will uh, subscribe to the contract like everybody else does. So you'd have to ask yourselves, is morality conditional or is it unconditional? If it is unconditional, then uh, social contractarianism cannot explain that. All right, number five, it encourages moral pretenders. Since the only reason for one to behave morally is out of their own self-interest instead of any you know, real moral obligation to do so, then as long as they can get away with secretly disobeying the contract, well, then why not? Why wouldn't you do that? So it encourages moral pretenders. Number six, moral condemnation is impossible. So in contractarianism, there is no basis for saying somebody's morally evil. So at best, you can say they're foolish for breaking the contract, that maybe it's not in their self-interest, but being foolish or being stupid isn't the same thing as being immoral. So there's no basis to condemn anybody as being immoral. Number seven, social contract theory cannot provide any meaningful boundaries or restraints for punishing those who go outside of the social contract. I mean, think about it. On what basis do you decide how you're going to punish those who break the contract? I mean, why couldn't you just say, well, you know, if you steal, we're going to kill you. Uh, why not torture people who tell a lie? Or why not uh, torture people who steal something, but those who murder, they just get away with, you know, one day in jail or something? Like, what would be wrong with any of those punishments? Society can choose, in the same way they've chosen the morality by which they want to abide by, they can choose whatever punishments they want. It can be less extreme, more extreme. It doesn't have to be proportionate to the crime. There's nothing morally that would guide them in how they mete out punishments. And eighth problem with social contract theory and the, the final criticism I have, uh, what about those who cannot assent to the contract? What about people who are mentally challenged and they can't assent to the contract? Do they have any moral obligations 
since they can't assent to the contract? Do they have any moral rights? Do other people in society have any obligations to them? I mean, if they can't consent to the contract, then and they have no contract with society, then why can't society just choose to kill them or do whatever they want with them? Because these people are not part of the contract. So for these reasons, I think social contract theory fails. So we've looked at the grounding problem and have seen that you do have to ground morality. You have to explain why moral values exist, why it is that certain things are right and wrong. How is it? What is it in the real world that can uh, ground these, um, you know, these features in reality? And then we began our examination of the non-theistic explanations for morality, looking at the social um, construction theory and social contract theory, and seeing both of these have multiple problems, that these cannot ground morality. So we'll stop there today. Next time, we'll pick up with the non-theistic explanations of morality, looking first at evolutionary ethics, and then the idea that uh, morality is just a brute fact. See you next time. To read my latest thoughts, visit the Thinking to Believe blog at thinkingtobelieve.com. Or if you'd like to comment on today's podcast, you can do so at the Thinking to Believe Facebook page. You can also send me any questions you might have at thinkingtobelieve at gmail.com. Until next time, keep thinking to believe.